I want to share something with you today. I may actually get into what I was in, what I felt to share last week um, before we kind of had a little different uh, challenge. Uh, but I want to share something with you this week that I guarantee you you're not going to like. I guarantee you that for most of you, you're probably going to want to turn me off or more than likely if you are not um, focused, you're going to get distracted. You're probably going to find other things to occupy your time over the next few minutes because your flesh, your natural man is not going to want to hear what I believe the Lord is having me share today. This is not going to be something that's going to make you walk away feeling great, uh, blessed, enriched, comforted. Um, because I got to be frank with you, that's not the season we're in. We're not in that season. We're not in the. We're not into the coddle, cuddle, uh, everything feel good season. God has challenging those who will to go to another level. And with that challenge, there is a call, a beckoning, a, 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 a pulse that's going out in the Holy Ghost to those who are listening. It's calling us to go to places that are uncomfortable. It's causing us to go into places that are not appealing to our flesh. But God is at work. So if you've got a Bible, um, one of these things, you don't actually have to have the physical. Uh, in fact, if you would give me one second, I want to be able to read. This is live, so we're just going to roll with it this morning. Apologize here today. It's just us, so uh, forgive me for being so casual here. But I want to share with you. I've got two translations here, and I want to share with you uh, out of both translations. And I'm going to read a little bit this morning, and I know that's maybe a little tough to follow when someone's reading, especially in this setting. So I'm going to ask you, if you have some ability to have a device or actually follow along, it would be best for you um, to follow along. Can I remind you again of the power of this book. I think we have, I said this the other night to a group of leaders. I'm very thankful that Jesus is so relatable. I'm very thankful that there have been a lot of things in this world uh, there's some some TV shows, there are books, there are uh, pictures. There's a lot of things out there right now that is helping with the relatability of Jesus Christ. And I do know the scripture talks about that he is not a high priest that is, uh, that is not touched by the feelings of our infirmity, that we have this connection with him. He's a father, he's a friend. All of that is true. I don't want to dismiss any of that or diminish the, the relatability, the fact that he's a friend that sticketh closer to the brother. I don't want to lose any of that or to negate that. But I think sometimes we can so 
watered down God with relatability that we forget the reverence of simply who he is and who and what his word is. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. If you approach this book intellectually, you will receive from it intellectually. But if you approach this book with the idea that this is the extension of the living God, that this is not just a book, but it is the true essence of God. In the beginning it was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you do that, this book comes alive in a lot of ways because it ultimately tells you about him. He shares with you things about him. I say that because I think sometimes we can lose the reverence of who God is. It's just another scripture. He's just reading again today. Okay, let's just get on with it. I got things to go, places to go, people to do, things to do. Can you get to the point that you realize that this is the living word of God? So Matthew chapter 16 Verse number 13, there's kind of three different uh, pieces here that are all blended together in the book of Matthew. Matthew 16 says this, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Notice the pronoun he put there. He didn't say upon this rock I will build the church or a church. He specifically Put a possessive pronoun in front of the word church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Don't forget that this thing we call the church does not belong to a man. Doesn't belong to an organization. It's not built for you or I. This church is God's church. It's built for him. We've got to stop looking at the church from our perspective because we're not the architect and the church isn't built for us. The church was built by him and for him and through him. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever thou bind in earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should know, tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now this was a massive moment of revelation here where Peter is confessing who Jesus is, and Jesus is returning this confession with the idea of the fact that here he is saying that you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail, whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. This is a massive moment of revelation, this is a massive moment of empowerment, this is a massive moment that has just taken place. And immediately following this, Matthew follows up with this. From that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, 
suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And he was raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. This is baffling to me when you read this for a moment. That Peter, this guy was absolutely all over the map. I mean, Peter is absolutely a train wreck half the time. And here's another portion of this that shows that Peter is just, the guy is downright wacky half the time. One moment over here, he's literally giving revelation and, and Jesus is sort of giving him the ultimate thumbs up and says to him in verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I mean, just absolutely great job. What you just received, Peter, what you understand is absolutely revelation from heaven itself. And on top of that, here's my second part of that. You are now going to be Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is absolutely just a powerful moment of Jesus telling Peter who he is and what he is calling him to be and the power that he is possessing. And then right after that, it's amazing how Peter was just this absolute tale of two halves. And then it says in verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto you. Meaning, this is not going to happen to you. You're Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. This is not going to happen to you. you you're not going to, we can't, we're not going to let this happen to you, and, and you're certainly not going to let this happen to you. And then Jesus goes from saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but by this, my, but, but my Father, which is in heaven, and you're going to be the rock, and the church is going to be built, my church is going to be built, and you got keys, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you, and all this stuff's going to happen. And then right after that, four verses, in verse 23, he says, But he turned, Jesus turned, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that are of men. And then Jesus went further. Verse 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited that if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I want to read this to you, this passage, same verses. I want to read it to you out of the, uh, it's called the Passion um, translation. I want to read it to you out of the Passion translation. So if you have an app that allows you, or maybe you have actually a real copy of the Passion translation, I want to read to you the same verses, verse 13 through verse 26 in the Passion 
translation. When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, What are the people saying about me, the Son of Man? Who do they believe I am? Then they answered, Some convinced you are John the Baptizer. Others say you are Elijah reincarnated or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked, and Simon Peter spoke up and said, You are the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, You are favored and privileged, Simon, son of Jonah, for you didn't discover this on your own, but my Father in heaven has supernaturally revealed it unto you. I give you the name Peter, a stone, and this rock will be the bedrock foundation on which I will build my church, my legislative assembly, and the power of death will not be able to overpower it. I will give you the keys of, the, of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth which is forbidden in heaven, to release on earth which is released in heaven. He again gave his disciples strict orders not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to clearly reveal to his disciples that he was destined to go to Jerusalem and suffer injustice from the elders, leading priests, religious scholars. He also explained that he would be killed, and three days later he would be raised again to life. Peter took him aside to correct him privately. He reprimanded Jesus over and over, saying, God forbid, Master, spare yourself. You must never let this happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get out of my way, you Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Because of your thoughts are only filled with man's viewpoint. Man, that's powerful. you got to get that. Your thoughts are only viewed with man's viewpoints and not with the ways of God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely reject and disown your own life. You must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own, as your continual surrender to my ways. For if you choose self-sacrifice and lose your life, for my glory, you will continually discover true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will forfeit what you, true, what you try to keep. For even if you were to gain all the wealth and power of this world at the cost of your own soul, what good would that be? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? Now, this is not exactly an American message. I've said this now for quite a while that I've had the opportunity, privilege um, in a lot of many ways to be able to travel around the world uh, and to be able to speak and share the gospel in many different countries and be exposed to uh, believers all across uh, the world in many different circumstances in many different places. And it's goes beyond saying this morning that uh, we are living in the most blessed country on the planet. Whether or not you like everything that is happening in our country, whether or not you agree with all the policies, whether or not you like the current uh, regime or not, if your man or woman is in the White House or if they're not, if you did or didn't vote for who's currently president, whatever it is, politics aside... We live in the most blessed country in the world. We live in the most blessed country financially. We live in the blessed, most blessed country um, with our freedoms. We are truly blessed to be living in America. Do we like everything? No. Do I agree with everything? No. 
Is everything in this country going the way that I would like for it to go? No. But would I choose to live anywhere else? If I had the choice, absolutely not. I would choose to be here and live in this country. So I say all of that because I want you to understand that I'm in no way making a disparaging mark about America or Americans or am I attempting to recant my American citizenship or even to a degree my pride in being an American. I am I am proud to be an American. Um, I am proud to wear the red, white, and blue. Um, I am proud to proclaim that the fact that I'm an American citizen. I carry a passport that says that I'm a citizen of this country and I'm proud to present it when I go through customs in other countries. I'm proud to be. That's not the point of this uh, five-minute rant. The point I'm trying to make is that we have a massive problem as Americans because when I go to this book, it's very difficult for me to go to this book without bringing who I am into light. And so when I come and I read the Word of God, it's very hard for me and for most of us to turn off our Americanism. That's not a word, but I'm going to use it for a second. Because of that, there are some passages in this book that don't really fit the American lifestyle, the American dream, or the American way of life. One of the major ones is this portion of scripture that I have just read. This in no way is the American way, or in no way is this what we as Americans desire. These last uh, four verses, that uh, last three verses here, and I'm going to read them again um, in the passing translation. Jesus says, verse 24, if you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely reject and disown your own life. You must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own. You're continually surrendered to my ways. For if you choose self-sacrifice and lose your lives for my glory, you will continually discover new true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will forfeit what you're trying to keep. For even if you were to gain all the wealth and power of this world at the cost of your own life, what good would that be? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? Those are strong words, powerful words, life-altering words. The problem is, those aren't very American words. We live in the, in, in, in the land of opportunity. We live in the place where it's the American dream. And the American dream is for us to get the biggest house, the nicest car, have the nicest of possessions, sometimes the most possessions, and all of us be able to make enough money to be able to retire and be able to live out the rest of our days doing what we want, how we want to do it, when we want to do it. And that's what we strive for, and that's what makes us successful. And we envy those, and we strive for those, and we look to those who have been able to successfully accomplish these things. 
Those with the most money, those with the most success, those with the most accolades are the ones that we put at the highest places of our society. They're the ones that garner the most attention. They're the ones that garner the most praise. And because of that, it is easy for us to take that same mentality and we come to the Word of God and we come to the framework of understanding who God is and God just becomes another accessory to us for us to achieve our dream. Therefore, God is really about blessing me. God's really about making my life the best it can be. God's about making sure that if I'm sick, I'm healed. If I have bills to pay, he pays them. If my house is too small, he'll give me a bigger one. If my car's broken down, he'll make sure that he gives me a better car. If I need this, I need that. If I, need, if I don't have a husband, he's going to give me a husband. If I don't have a wife, he's going to give me a wife. If, that's what we've made God to be. Now, God, can God do that? Yes. Are there parts about that that are true? Yes. Does God, is he God, a God of blessings? Absolutely yes, he is. But there is a very big clause in the contract. You see, we like, a lot of us love the verses that precede this statement. We love the fact that we can get revelation on who Jesus is. Show me who you are, God. Show me. Who do you say that I am? You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. That's awesome. I want that. God, show me who you are. And then right after that, the power of you no longer will be called this. You will be called Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I love all that. That's awesome. But then Jesus says, okay, that's where you, are, you can go. But let me tell you some things you need to understand in order to get there. In order to get there, the first thing is, and I love the way the Passion Translation tells it to us, is this. When Peter takes Jesus aside and attempts to rebuke Jesus for basically allowing himself to become a victim of injustice. And Peter is sort of frustrated with this idea that Jesus is going to allow himself to become a victim, to become used and abused when he has all the power to stop it. And Peter goes to him and basically says to him, you can't let this happen. You need to stop all this. If you know it's going to happen and you're God, you need to stop this. Don't let it happen. And Jesus gives the response back to him that is so revelatory. We don't realize what he's, we, we don't, we, we miss what he's really saying here. He looks at Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. And then he makes this statement. Why are you a problem? What was wrong with Peter? What was really the core issue? And Jesus says the core issue. And he says, because your thoughts are only filled with man's ways and not with the ways of God. If that right there is not the true essence that we all fight with. Something that my wife and I have repeatedly talked about the last, I don't know, it's been about a year maybe, probably longer than that. I'm not always so 
good with dates, specific times. It's been a while now. My wife may be able to tell you more detail how long. But we've talked about this quite a bit. We've had conversations about it. God doesn't see things the way we see it. Now, I know when I say that, most of you are like, well, that's the most obvious statement. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for that brilliant insight. I don't really think we realize that. God doesn't see things the way we see them. Even though that seems like the most obvious statement of all time, I don't think we fully grasp what that means. Here's somebody in Peter who had just been given the thumbs up of massive revelation. Yet even in his revelation, he still was looking at things through his own perspective. So that proves to me that supernatural revelation does not equal the same as seeing things through God's perspective. That means I can have partial revelation or revelation in certain aspects of God, but not see the full picture or how God sees things. I say that because I have discovered in my own life, I'm discovering even more on a greater level with where God has and taking uh, me over this last little journey that even to a greater degree, that God's ways and God's thoughts and God's viewpoints are so different. The way he sees things, the way he views things. I'll give you an example. We look at everything in our lives because it's something that's conditioned into, into us, uh, for a lot of different ways. Part of it is because our school, we, we learn this in school. And so because we learn it in school, it's something that easily translates over into our normal life. And that is, we look at everything from a pass-fail perspective. Right? We look at everything from a pass-fail uh, perspective as from the standpoint of, I'm either doing good or I'm doing bad. I either... Did this or did that? I, I, what did I get on my, my test? Okay, I passed it, great. If I failed it, that's bad. We look at everything like that. But God doesn't see it like that. Now, I'm not suggesting or am I saying that God looks at things and just basically says it doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that passing and failing to God is not based off of how we See, pass and fail. And here's why I say that. Because, actually, I'm going to read it to you. So that you know, if you've got a Bible, you can go with me. A lot of you that have been around for a long time, you know this scripture before I even read it. But in case you're new or maybe you're just following along and you don't know this verse, I'm going to read it for you. Hebrews chapter um 11, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 11. And 
we're going to go to the end of chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 is, people, people call chapter 11 Faith's Hall of Fame. If you ever have ch a chance, read through chapter 11. It's all about faith. And it lists all these amazing characters in the Bible. It talks about Abel and Enoch, and it goes through Noah and Abraham, uh, Sarah. Uh, it talks about um, um, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Um, it's even all the way through here, Rahab and the Battle of Jericho. And uh, it just continues to go through. And then it gets down to a list of non-named uh, non individuals beginning, um, let's get here. Um, for example, starting with verse 32, it says this. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepted deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. I mean, this is just a constant list of all these accolades and deeds and major moments of faith from shutting the mouths of lion to being delivered to subduing kingdoms and powers and principalities, all this amazing things. I mean, we know some of these stories just by the name. If I said to you just the names of the characters, you go Samson, you know immediately what that means, Samson, what he did. If I say Moses or I say Noah or these other names that I'm mentioning, they're, they're synonymous with just absolutely amazing things happening in and through their lives. And then he gets on and said, Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepted deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others have trial of cruel mockings and scourging. Yet moreover, of the bonds of imprisonment, they were stoned and they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepkin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Now, just for one small second here, who is he talking about? I just got to put this in there. It's not what I'm talking about for a second, but I got to put this in there. I want to go back through here just really quickly. Women receive their dead raised to life again. Okay, I like that. I love miracles. I want to see God do some amazing miracles. I can sign up to that. Okay. Women receiving their dead, dead people coming back to life. Sign me up. I want to see that. Show me what you're doing, God. That's awesome. Who wouldn't want to see God resurrect a dead person? I mean, that's crazy, right? We saw times where Jesus basically showed up at a funeral and said, you know, the funeral's over. Time for them to get up. I mean, that's just, wow, awesome. We sign up for that, but let's look at the rest of the stuff. Tortured, they didn't accept deliverance. That they might obtain a better, better resurrection. Meaning, they were tortured, but they didn't find a way out of torture. They accepted the pain and the outcome of torture because they knew that it was only temporary, but there was a better resurrection that was coming that was eternal. Then, they had 
trial of cruel mocking and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. Now it's starting to get, I don't like this stuff so far. They were stoned. I'm not trying to be, not trying to sound crazy, but uh, that ain't, that doesn't sound great. I don't really want rocks thrown at me. Then it gets better. They were sawn asunder, meaning they were cut. They were, they were, they were sawed in half. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin. Why? Being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Wait a minute. These were supposed to be some of the most powerful people on the planet. These are the children of God. They should be blessed. They should be highly favored. Their lives should be perfect. Everything in their lives should be going according to plan. They should never have a bad day. They should never have to go through anything. If they go through anything, they should just be able to snap their fingers and God come swooping down and rescue them and pick them back up on the mountain. And if they have a bad day, they should shake it off because God is God and blessed be his name. Everything that God has is good and we should be able to be blessed and highly favored. That's what we've been told. But tell me, forgive me for being a little passionate because there's a lie that we've been told that if God, everything in our life isn't going according to plan, if our lives aren't perfect, if we're dealing with any kind of problem and difficulty and stress, then somehow we've missed God. But tell me on this list right now, does anybody want to sign up for stoned, imprisonment, torturing, cut in half, killed by a sword, running around in goat skin and sheep skin, being destitute, afflicted, and tortured? None of that sounds... In fact, if someone came today into one of our gatherings or came to one of our small groups or approached one of us and said all these things, our first reaction would not be, wow, they're walking with Jesus. Our first reaction would be, where'd you go wrong? Let me pray with you, brother. Let me pray with you, sister. Because certainly, God doesn't want this for you. Is God a deliverer? Yes. Can God make a way where there is no way? Yes. Can God bless Yes. Can he heal? Yes. Can he, can he provide peace and joy? Yes. 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 But there are times in your life where God will lead you into places of affliction, places of destitution, places of torment, Places where you're going to walk into the storm, where you're going to walk into the sword, you're going to walk into the saw, you're going to walk into the stone, you're going to walk into the prison, you're going to walk into the bondage, you're going to walk into the hurt, you're going to walk into the torture. Wait a minute, God, you're supposed to be leading out of this. No, because you're seeing it through your eyes. You're not seeing it God's way. I don't know why I'm saying this today, but someone needs to hear it. I believe this is part of the lie that we've been told. It's just this, 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 this peace. Because i got to be frank with you. If the only reason why we ever have a smile on our face is because everything in our life is going good, what different are we than people that don't have God because they have smiles on their face when their lives are going good. What difference 
is there between those who walk with Jesus and those who don't walk with Jesus if when people who walk with Jesus always are frustrated and upset and mad and grumpy because their life isn't going according to plan. But the beauty that we have as believers, as someone who confesses not only to walk with Jesus, but confesses to have Jesus inside of them. The beauty that is when I get on here in the morning, you should not be able to tell if I'm having a good day or bad day. You shouldn't be able to tell if my life is going according to my plan or not because I walk with him. So no matter what my circumstances are telling me, my heart and my life and my inner man is connected to him. That's what makes me different. We've told the world, we've sold the world a book of lies that basically if you come to God, he'll make your life perfect. And therefore, when they come to God and they have struggles and difficulties and things aren't going according to plan, and we're telling them, well, you change this and God's going to do that. Well, you're, you need to get better at this and God will bless you here. And then they do these things and their life doesn't change. And we're like, well, sorry, it doesn't work for you. And they go, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Bottom line, There's no guarantee in this book everything's going to turn out right on this earth. That's why there's an old song that says, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I don't believe God designed this path to be smooth and easy. Is he a God of peace? Absolutely. Is he a God of joy? Absolutely. But peace and joy that he gives doesn't come with the same lens that we see peace and joy with. Our idea of peace is nothing going wrong in our life that will bring us peace. But his peace is to give us a peace and an assuredness and a calmness in the midst of our greatest storm. That's how his peace works. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves. He continues to go down this list of all this stuff. But here we go. And these all, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. There's another translation that says it this way. These all died in faith, having not received a promise. Have not, having not received the promise. Meaning, they believed for it, but they didn't get it. How many of you today have believed for something? You sincerely believed for it, but it didn't come to pass. How many of you have prayed and asked God for something, and you confessed it, but it didn't come to pass? How many of you prayed for healing but didn't get healed? How many of you prayed for deliverance and didn't get delivered? How many of you believed that God was going to make a way but it didn't happen? And when that took place, how many of you felt like you had failed? That somehow you had missed God or 
somehow your faith wasn't strong enough. Can I tell you today that in God's mind and in God's eyes, if you believed, no matter the outcome, that in God's eyes, you passed? Many of you know my wife and I went on a two-week unscheduled, unscripted, for lack of a better term, you want to call it this, a spiritual quest that God took us on two weeks. Still not done yet. Thankfully, we're not traveling around in the car every day. But it was unscripted. It was unscheduled. Two week. I wish I could tell you today that upon arriving home, we were greeted with a host of angels. That we were greeted with the heavens opening up with booming voices shining, blasting. I wish we could tell you today that we returned home with a triumph of trumpets blasting, rejoicing the fact that we had somehow successfully completed our journey. Or I wish I could tell you that upon returning home, we came home bearing sort of this uh, immense revelation and we saw God face to face and man, you should have seen what we saw. We were carried up to the 15th heaven and we saw God and we saw him face to face and we smelled the flowers of heaven and we walked through the pastures of the rolling hills of heaven and we even got a chance to feel the feel the texture of the streets of gold and we talked to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We hung out up in heaven. It, it was absolutely amazing and I'm going to tell you everything about heaven. I, I, don't, I don't have that story. We got a lot of stories of driving around in the car. We got a lot of stories of going to, from gas station to gas station. We got a lot of stories of, I can tell you pretty much where there's every fast food restaurant between here, Florida, Florida, Arkansas, Arkansas, back to Maryland. I got a lot of that. I can tell you some good truck stops. And I can tell you a couple truck stops you might want to avoid at all costs. We had some intense spiritual encounters, there's no doubt. But there was a side of all of that. For me, I don't want to speak for my wife, but for me there was a side of all that that I kind of returned home sort of feeling not like a failure, but feeling that I pass, that I fail. I believed God. I, we, we literally, and, and I'm not saying this to give glory to us. I'm saying this to provide a lens and a perspective. If you looked at all that took place from a natural standpoint. Honestly, you probably would think it was an absolute waste of two weeks and an absolute failure. 
that's because I'm seeing it through my eyes. God's ways are above my ways. His thoughts are above my thoughts. I can't tell you how many times on that two-week path that we actually said out loud, let's just go home. This is not working. Let's just go home. This is pointless. This is so, this is just so stupid. Let's just go home. We're wasting gas. We're wasting time. Our kids are in the back. They've been in the car now for way too long. This is just beginning to get too much. Not knowing what we're gonna do, not knowing where we're going. It was just like, okay, you know, this is not this is not working. Let's just go home. We had this conversation numerous times. But every time we had those conversations, there'd be this little voice inside of us that would kind of rise up. And we'd push a little further. Push towards what? Hmm. Honestly, 99.99% of the time, we had no idea. We were just usually pushing towards wherever God was telling us to go and telling us to stop and telling us to get food. We were pushing towards the next command, the next call, the next order. I said all that because through those peaks and valleys, there was a lot of times where I personally felt like, man, I really failed. Man, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. My faith failed. My faith was weak there. But I believe in all that God began to kind of encourage us and challenge us that failure and passing in his perspective is far different than failing and passive passing in our perspective. He said, these all died in faith having not received the promise. You see, if we see things only through God's perspective, we live a very uh, up and down life. The moment something goes wrong in our life, the first thing we think of is, what have I done wrong? What sin have I committed? Where am I missing God? I certainly can't be in his will. Because if I was in his will, my life would not be going according to this. If I'm in his will, I should be happy, joy, peace, all these things. I shouldn't have all this problem. That's because we're seeing it through our eyes, not his eyes. He tells Peter all the way back in Matthew chapter 16 that we started this off of is this. He said, Peter, the problem you have is you're seeing this through your eyes. 
not through my eyes. And then he tells the real point to all this. Whoever tries to gain his life is going to lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. You know the problem with that? You can't hack the system. My wife and I were talking about this last night. A while back, the Lord kind of gave her some encouragement. She was frustrated, and I'm probably not telling it well, so forgive me, Kate, for not conveying this exactly how you have said it. I tried to get get it the best I can, but she was frustrated because she felt like she kept failing. She kept failing, kept failing. And the Lord began to show her something because she was trying to do it the best she could and it kept no matter how good she did it, it was never good enough. She made the statement that God began to show her her standards were higher than his standards. Her expectations were higher than his expectations. And he said, the revelation that came to her was she was trying to paint a Mona Lisa, some masterpiece. And it never was good enough. It never came out right. And God was okay with a few squiggly lines on a page like your child would give to you. Where that two-year-old, three-year-old walks up and says, Dad, I made a picture. You like it? And you're like, it's amazing. If you put that piece of paper up against anybody else, they're going to be like, what in the world is this? It's a bunch of lines. But to you as the parent, it's a masterpiece. You don't care if your three or four-year-old can't paint you the Mona Lisa. The fact is right there, I mean, they're stick figures. The heads are this big. The bodies are this big. One eye's this big. One eye's this big. The mouth is crooked. There's an ear on top of the head. There's an ear on the jaw. But to you, it's beautiful. They'll say, look, mom, I drew you. There you are right there, and there I am right there, and and you know, and, and we're together. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't look anything like either one of us. But to you, it's a masterpiece. Because you're not looking at it through anyone's eyes, but the eyes of love to your child. And he, she said that the Lord showed her that she was trying to create a masterpiece, but because the fact that she was his child... He was okay with whatever she gave, even if it was just a few squiggly lines to him. That was all he wanted. The problem with that is this. We were, we were talking about this last night and how liberating that was. But the problem is that some of you hear that and you go, well, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, all I got to do, give God, is a couple of squiggly lines. Here you go, God. You told... You told Kate that oh, you don't care about a masterpiece. You want a couple squiggly lines. Okay, I got that. I, I, I can do that in my sleep. Here's a couple squiggly lines. Here you go. And God goes, no, I don't want that. You're like, wait a minute, God. You told me all you cared about was just me giving you something. I'm giving you something, and now you're rejecting it. This isn't fair. You missed the whole point. Because I got to be frank with you. If my three-year-old gives me a few squiggly lines, I, as a parent, I go, this is beautiful. I love it. 
man, I'm going to cherish this. My wife literally has boxes, and I mean boxes, stacked on top of each other, filled with a bunch of paper with squiggly lines on it. My wife didn't have the heart to throw away pretty much anything my kids made for her. If it was a piece of paper on the back of a napkin at a restaurant and they drew a picture and said, Mommy, I drew this for you, she kept it. We have boxes upon boxes upon boxes of all the stuff that they made for her and put in here. But I got to be frank with you. If today I drew a few squiggly lines with a Crayola crayon and handed it to my wife and said, Hey, honey, I made this for you. She probably would not put that in the keepsake box. She wouldn't go, oh, Joel, that's wonderful. Thank you. This means the world to me. She'd probably go, really? No. Wait a minute. You're rejecting me. You took their, you took their picture and you're throwing my picture away. You're not fair. Why? You know the problem with that is? They gave everything. And I just tried to do something to get by. That's the problem with a lot of this. For a lot of you that have been around a long time, you see someone come along and they give God a few squiggly lines and God accepts that and blesses them. And you're like, why am I trying so hard? Forget that. Here, God, here's my squiggly lines. And God goes, yeah, no, doesn't work that way. You're like, but God, it's not fair. You know why? Because God ultimately is not looking for the outcome. God's looking for your heart. If your heart is there, if you're giving it all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the outcome to God is irrelevant. The question is, are you giving it everything? The problem is we care about the outcome and not the effort that goes into it. If I'm giving God every part of me, that's all he cares about. I want to look at what's the minimum amount I need to do. Tell me, preacher, today, what do I need to do to be able to be saved? So just give me that. I'm going to do that. And God's like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Wait a minute. Over there, that person's doing that, and they're going to be saved. But over here, you do the same thing, and you're lost. This isn't fair. What is God doing? The problem is they're giving every piece of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God's going, yes, yes. But I'm over there, and I'm just giving half of myself, a quarter of myself, a Sunday part of myself. And I'm giving it, and it looks like it's the same outcome, but God's rejecting me, and he is accepting that. And I get frustrated with God. And the problem is I don't see things the way he sees it because he, they're giving everything, and I'm giving a portion, but I'm expecting God to treat us both the same way. And God goes, nay, nay, nay. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who's willing to lose their life in order to gain it. But you see, you can't hack the system. You can't go, okay, if I lose my life, I'm going to gain it. So I'm really going to gain if I lose. So, okay, God. God, I want to lose my life. Wink, wink, wink. Okay, God, I'm waiting for the gain. Okay. God, hey. Oh, come on. Huh. Hey. Did you not hear what I just said, God? Okay. Let's try this again because you didn't hear me. Oh, God. I lose my life for your sake, God. I give everything to you. All of me to you, God. I give it to you. Here it is, God. Okay, wait. I'm waiting for it. Here it comes. Bless me. I'm going to gain it all. Here we go. Ready? I just gave it all to him. Okay. Uh, 
Hello? Excuse me up there. I just gave you all my life. I lost it and I'm waiting for the game. This isn't fair. You said if I lost my life, I would gain it. So I'm losing my life, but I'm not gaining anything. So what's up with that? You don't understand how God sees it. God says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's the first part about that. The first part about it is, when you finally lose something enough that you don't care if you ever get it back, that's when God can take you to a place of gain. But you see, he's not looking at your action. He's looking at your heart. So you can't hide your heart through your actions and say, God, but over here I'm doing this. Look at this hand, God. Look at this hand. Oh, you don't. God, look at over here. God, hey, over here. I, hey, look. God, you look, you, 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 you look, you look, don't, don't worry about, don't, don't, you don't, don't worry about, no, you don't need to look over there. You look, hey God, over here, I'm worshiping you over here. Don't worry about this. Hey God, pay attention over here. Look at what I got for you. No, no, don't, don't, no, you don't need to see this stuff. I, I'm a, I'm a, I, hey, no, no, God's going, yeah. I don't care that you're worshiping me with your hand because your heart is far from me. See, that's why a lot of us, we're not really experiencing all the things that this book promises because we're expecting one way and get a result. You see, you can't trick God. I've realized there's some things about this that I was expecting God to give me something and I wasn't giving him everything. So got to be frank with you today. Some of you are going to take this message and go, I've already been doing that. I already got that. Next. No, you're not. Sorry to say that. You're not. You're doing it, but you're doing it because you're expecting the positive part about the outcome. God, I'm losing my life. Because God, I know if I lose my life, you're going to bless me. If I lose my life, God, you're going to enrich me. If I lose my life, God, your word promises that you're going to give me life more abundantly. The Bible says if I lose my life, I'm going to gain it. So God, I'm losing my life. And I'm waiting for the game. Where, what, where's the where's the game? Where's the where's? No. We all know the story. It's been repeated a thousand times. It's been used a, a million times as illustrations. We all know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Right? He takes Isaac up to the altar, and he puts Isaac on the altar, and he goes to kill Isaac. And God stops his hand and he looks over and sees a ram in the thicket and God provides a sacrifice and Isaac gets up off the altar and God's like, okay, Abraham, you passed the test. This is awesome. And so we're like, okay. So then we make everything our Isaac. We put things on the altar. And we're like, okay, God, it's on the altar. All right, God. All right, God. Hey, watch me, God. Watch. Look. Hey, look. Swords in the air, God. All right, wink, wink. All right, where's the, okay. Hey, God, whoo, sword's in the air. Where's the ram? God, if you show me the ram, I, you know, I got the sword in the air. Where's the ram? Hey, God, I'm doing everything Abraham did. 
I've got the I've got Isaac on the altar. He's tied down. I got the sticks. I'm ready to burn the dude when he's dead. I'm gonna kill him right now. He's all set to go. My knife is sharp. I've got all the I've got all the steps. Where's the ram? God, where's the ram? Where, where where's the ram? You know the problem was? Do you know why God stopped Abraham and it showed him a ram? Because Abraham had already made the sacrifice in his heart. God didn't need to see him complete the job in action. Because in his mind, all the way up that mountain, he was saying, God, I give you Isaac. 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 I would imagine it doesn't say this, but if he was a if he was anything like most human beings were, when he lifted up his sword, he looked at that boy with tears in his eyes, saying, Goodbye, son, but I've got to do this. I don't believe God stopped him when his hand was here. I don't believe I believe Abraham looked at the boy his eyes one more time and said, "Son, I know you don't understand this, but I got to tell you I'm really sorry, but I got to obey God." And I believe he had every intent of bringing that knife straight into that boy's heart and killing him on that altar. How barbaric is that? How crazy is that? How insane is that? But in his mind, he had already made it up. And God says, that's enough. Stop. But I want to just trick God into saying, God, I got, the, I, got, I got Isaac on the altar. God, look at my knife. It's in the ear. Watch, watch God. Ready? Watch. I'll show it to you. Whoop. Whoop. Come on, God. I mean, you know. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. Whoop. You ever played that game with somebody where you, where they stand there and you, Like you're going to punch him, but you get real close and it comes back. You know, it doesn't work that way. God, watch. Isaac, ready? Here it goes. Is that good enough for you, God? Okay, I will do it one more time. You're not watching. God, look. Watch me, God. Watch what I'm doing. Look, knife, Isaac, sword. Here we go. God, how many times am I going to have to do this before you show me a ram? Literally. Do you not see what I'm doing? God's like... You can do that all day till you have arthritis in your shoulder and your elbow and your knee. But I'm not giving you a ram. But God, you gave Abraham a ram. I gave Abraham a ram because he had already killed Isaac in his heart. So until this gets in your heart, and you know what's funny? I wonder. I know this is sort of sacrilegious to say this. It's not in the Bible, so I'm just going to throw that out there. I don't even know if Abraham was relieved. There's a part of me that says he would have been greatly relieved. I don't know. I think he was so sold out to the moment when it actually happened. I don't think he was like, oh, thank God. Because you know what? There have been times in my life where God brought me to a place of surrender so far that when he actually gave me what I had surrendered, honestly, I wasn't even that excited about it. I was like, okay, Lord, if you want to give it back to me, that's fine, but 
We literally just had this happen. I don't want to give you the specifics of it because it would cheapen the story. My wife and I literally had this happen. We were in a situation where we wanted, we, we have, it was a natural thing. It wasn't some great spiritual quest. It was a natural thing. We wanted it. We actually really, something we enjoy, my wife and I, and we wanted it. And we had opportunity to actually do it. And, and had to literally see the finish line twice. And it was so funny that God in this journey we were on took us to this particular place twice. I'm trying to be, if I told you what it was, you'd probably go, that's dumb. So I'm not even going to cheapen the story. For us, it's important. For us, it was a big deal. And God literally took us by this place twice but it was in the middle of this journey we were on and we drove right by it. And honestly, I can't speak for her, but I'm pretty sure she felt the same way. We drove by this place twice, but never even hesitated to stop. Even though in our flesh, we would have stopped in a heartbeat. But in our spirit, we were so desperate to be all in with Jesus that we drove by this place twice. We didn't even hesitate. And when we got home, like three or four days after we got home, the Lord spoke to my wife, showed her something, and God ended up giving us more in return than what we gave up. But honestly, I can't speak for her. It's great. But we weren't like, oh, this is the... It was like, okay, Lord, if you want to do that, we'll take it. But... It's up to you. See, the problem with this, and I'm done, is don't leave this, turn this off, and then go, okay, so if I do A, I'll get B. All right, God, here's my squiggly lines. Here's my Isaac. I'm giving you my life and losing it. And then sit back, wait for God. No, no, no. God doesn't look on the outward. God looks on the inward. This is not about what you do. It's really about what's in your heart. He said to Peter, Peter, the problem you got is you're looking at man's perspective, not God's perspective. You're trying to avoid problems and situations and difficulty and pain because you're trying to keep your life. But if you lose your life, somewhere in that quest Peter went on, he lost his life because he got to the point where when God gave it back to him, here's Peter, arrogant, cocky, who was the one that talks about being humble, walking in humility. So my challenge to you today, my fellow Americans, are we going to follow the American dream or are we going to follow God? Because you know what? God has no obligation to give you the American dream. If you saw our life today, my wife, my wife and I's life, what God has given and blessed us with, you would think that all that I'm talking to you about today is a big sales pitch baloney. Well, of course you're telling me all that. Look at your life. 
Of course, I would say that if you have no idea how many altars we have faced. And you know what? I say this, and I don't even blink to say it. If God said right now, take it all, I wouldn't even blink. You say, well, you're just saying that. You know what? I'm sorry you feel that way. So if you see, if you know my wife and I, you look at our life, you go, man, of course he talks about that. Because look at his life. It's so amazing. I mean, God's blessed us with a beautiful house. We have wonderful cars. We're, we're blessed. We are very blessed. But honestly, I can't tell you how many times on that Two weeks we prayed through tears and said, God, if you want it all, it's all yours. It wasn't wink, 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 God, take it all. You know, we'll give it all to you. It was, God, take it all. We we went through scenarios. We were talking about, okay, hey, look, let's go do if God asks us, here's how here's what we can do. We do this. We we were literally mapping out our life as if it was already a done deal that God was going to ask. We had thought for sure God was going to ask us to, and we were mapping it out. And we get back home and God starts doing things that are opposite of that. We go, wait a minute. What? We didn't ask for this. God's like, you know what? You didn't ask for this. That's why I'm giving it to you because you gave me all. Sorry, folks. Some of you are totally in your carnality and your flesh going to try to take this message and this word and use it for your own good and it's not going to work and you're going to go see it doesn't work but there's somebody out there that's listening to me that's going to find their altar and they're going to put it all on the altar and they're going to say God it's all yours every bit I don't want a penny if you want it all I give it to you and you're not doing it with a wink and a smile, and a smirk, expecting God to go, okay, you can have it back. You're doing it because in your mind, it's already done. God, you want it, it's yours. If it's what you want, it's yours. My job, my career, my life, my earnings, my health, my possessions, everything is yours. If you want it all, you can have it all. Well, is God going to give it back? I don't know, but he can have it all. That's what God's wanting today. He doesn't want your actions. He wants your heart. And you know what? Every day, I got to be frank with you. I say this with all sincerity. Every day I'm discovering there's other pieces of my heart that I haven't fully given. And he goes, yeah, but Joel, there's another piece. There's another piece. And literally, I'm going down the list in my heart, going, okay, God, I give you that. There's a song that says, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, have your way in I pray that today, that that becomes your prayer. 
Lord, I give you my heart. Lord, I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, have your way in me. All of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength today in Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you as always for joining. I pray in Jesus' name that you are challenged, that you are convicted, not because of me, but because of the power of the word of God and the spirit of God that's at work in your life. Because the Bible says that he's drawing us. Would you let God draw you close to him and let him work in your life today in Jesus' name. God bless you, and we'll see you again next time.